0: all right once again good morning turn with me in your bibles to the gospel of john chapter 13. and if you're new with us we want to say welcome it's good to see you and to let you know we are working our way through john's gospel here at calvary on Sunday morning and we have entered into chapter 13 been there for a couple weeks chapter 13 as we have said opens up roughly 15 hours before the cross. As we have said, chapters 13 through 17 covers a six-hour period, roughly from about 6 p.m. to midnight. And this was such an important six-hour period that John spends one quarter of his entire gospel recording it. It begins in the upper room, where Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover together, and where he gives them one last teaching before his crucifixion. Primarily, Jesus teaches his disciples a very important lesson in humility. You see, in the upper room, a running argument erupted again, and that was who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus, seeing that he was only a few hours from the cross, probably feeling very bad about the fact that they didn't seem to be learning what he had so wanted them to know, heartfelt sincerity on the Lord's part. And um, so he just quietly at one point gets up, takes a towel, girds his waist with the towel, takes some water in a pitcher, pours it in the basin, begins to walk around the table washing his disciples' feet. In doing this, he was stressing one more time that, uh, that uh, greatness in God's kingdom is not measured by authority, it's measured by humility. It's not, it doesn't, it's not with regard to how many people you are over, and lord it over. It's about how many people you are under in the sense of being a servant to them And he wanted to stress this because if they were truly his disciples Then they needed to follow they must follow the example he set For them that they would be servants of all of course This is the jesus who said who summed up his entire ministry in fact His whole life with the statement in matthew 20 28, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so while the Lord is teaching his disciples this very important and powerful lesson in humility, which ends at verse 17, his thoughts suddenly shift to the one person in the room who was not a true disciple, who had never been a true disciple, a man who would never follow the Lord's example of humility, but instead has become, for all time, the ultimate example of hypocrisy, and that is Judas. And so the Lord Jesus, after he has taught his disciples one more time about greatness in God's kingdom measured in humility, he turns to the one in the room who is the ultimate in hypocrisy, that is Judas, and he sees Judas reclining there among the disciples like a tear among the wheat. And so he quickly adds in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now that last statement from verse 18 is a quote from Psalm 41 verse 9, where David wrote and said, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, or in other words, became a betrayer to me. And of course, David wrote this about his dear friend and close confidant, Ahithophel. Ahithophel had been one of David's right-hand men, as far as a counselor was concerned. And uh, he had been with David a long time. But when Absalom, David's son, Uh, organized a rebellion against his father ahithophel joined forces with absalom and that led to david uh, speaking this here in psalm 41 9 however jesus tells us in john 13 verse 8 it was really ultimately a prophecy of jesus and judas how after judas had been with jesus three and a half years and uh, had been one of the inner of the the twelve, excuse me, of the disciples, the twelve. And yet Judas had turned against, Judas had betrayed the Lord, or was about to. Let me stop here for a minute and talk about betrayal, because that's what's in view here. Betrayal is one of the most difficult and painful experiences a person can go through. And the reason for that is because betrayal implies a level of trust and intimacy that few relationships ever reach. I mean, I'm thinking of marriage now. Marriage is the deepest human relationship two people can enter into, surpassed only by a person's relationship with God Almighty. But in marriage, two people know each other more deeply than anyone knows them, all right? Except for God. Um, and because they know each other so well their deepest feelings thoughts failures and so on that's what makes divorce so difficult Uh, when you give your heart to a person to that degree when two people are glued together that's what the hebrew word says in marriage what god does and then they're ripped apart through divorce uh, large chunks of a person's heart is ripped out as well and it really becomes exacerbated when one or both spouses decides to attack each other in divorce using this very um, intimate knowledge of one another against them to hurt them. Uh, it's very painful. Uh, and, and, and I think when you're betrayed by a spouse, that's a, a cuts especially deep. I heard a story that came out of World War II, where when the Nazis were on the rise, they were encouraging Germans to turn in their friends and even their family members who were resisting the Nazi takeover. And so one day there was a knock on this particular house, and the um, husband of the family went there, opened the door to find some of the uh, the, the, uh, the the police, German police. There to arrest him for being one of the resistance. So he was part of, uh, just he wasn't for the Nazis, he wasn't backing them, and so they considered him part of the resistance. Uh, Upon examining him and talking to him, uh, they uh, let it come out that it was his wife that had uh, turned him in. When he heard that, he got physically ill and vomited right there. It was such a betrayal and caught him so off guard, uh, he just had a physical reaction to it because it was so. Uh, so deep but betrayal isn't limited to uh, marriage relationships obviously it can happen between friends Uh, but I'm thinking more between very close friends or best friends usually and that's because betrayal can only happen when someone you have confided in put your trust in shared your deepest thoughts with turns on you and uses that information against you to hurt you in some way Betrayal can't happen among acquaintances, like co-workers or casual friends, because those relationships seldom reach the level of trust and intimacy necessary for a person to feel safe enough, you know, to share some of their deepest feelings and thoughts and hurts and fears and so on. You have to bring somebody into your heart, into your life. You know, when, when you get to know somebody and you decide that they're trustworthy, and, uh, and you open yourself up more and more thinking that this information is going to be kept uh, secret, you know, just between you and me because we're very good friends. And then that person turns against you. Uh, it devastates you. It devastates you. And um, it, it's just one of those things that we, we see in life. And uh, that's why when people uh, have experienced the hurt of betrayal, and I'm thinking again, marriage cuts very deep. Uh, it's caused a lot of people in our society to not open up anymore. Maybe you know people like this. They just will not open up to you. You try to be friends. You try to, you know, and they just keep it very superficial, very superficial. Um, and 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 the more you try, the more they just it's just very superficial. They've probably been hurt by somebody in their life, a spouse maybe or a dear friend, and because of the pain of betrayal, they've decided I'm not going to open myself up to anybody anymore, which is understandable, but. It, it, it's, we need relationships, we, we are relational beings, God, we were made in God's image, who himself is a relational being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the worst thing you can do for somebody is put them in solitary confinement, because God is wired, we need each other, and superficial relationships are inevitable in life, but you can't, uh, you can't, uh, can't contain your life to those only, it, it has to go deeper, and if not, you will be damaged. You will never get past the hurt of betrayal that someone has uh, perpetrated against you in the past. You'll never heal if you don't begin to then slowly uh, trust people again. No, you don't share your heart, deepest feelings with everybody, obviously. You, you pick your friends maybe uh, more wisely, but you don't shut people off altogether and isolate yourself. It, you're only going to do, da- do damage to, to yourself. Very important point. But usually people who have been hurt will cut themselves off from people, but not always. There are exceptions and uh, that that all of us will make at times. Uh, When we do trust someone enough to open up to them about some of our most inward struggles and fears and hurts, we understand that makes us vulnerable. We understand that potentially we become a target for betrayal. But again, I think some people weigh the consequence and say, you know, I'd rather be hurt again Uh, than to cut myself off from people and not ever have any deep relationships ever again all right now understand one of the reasons betrayal is so painful is because it's unexpected it's unexpected in other words it takes a person by surprise who who would have never guessed their spouse Uh, or even a very dear friend uh, and confidant would ever betray them and use Private information against them. The reason Jesus said, "In ver- now I, I say all this to say this." Judas was about to betray Jesus. With Jesus, it wasn't unexpected. Okay, with the rest of us, when people betray us, often it is right. If we suspected somebody was going to betray us, we wouldn't open up to them. So you know, it takes us by surprise, right? We uh, brought somebody uh, close to us into our heart, and we trusted them. And it takes a while to build trust, uh, but not very long for it to be torn down, and then it takes forever to re- be rebuilt again because you don't want to be hurt. Now, when we talk about Jesus uh, and Judas' betrayal of him, Jesus wanted us to know, and this is why he said verse 18, was because he didn't want his disciples to think that Judas' betrayal took him by surprise or was going to take him by surprise, but rather he wanted them to know that what judas was about to do was fore or foreknown by god from eternity past all right from eternity past and to prove it he prophesied psalm 41 verse 9 through david a thousand years before jesus was ever born on this earth that judas was going to betray uh, betray jesus at one point but settle down guys disciples take it easy I'm telling you this beforehand so that it doesn't take you by surprise because I want you to know what's going on because this was all in the plan of God for the redemption of mankind from the very beginning. One of the reasons that God has placed prophecy in his word is to prove that he is God, to prove that he is God. Um, How do you know the book in your lap is really God's word? Well, there's numerous ways, and people who uh, have a ministry of proving God's word will take you through four or five different things. There's, there's the uh, history, there's the internal evidence, external evidence, and so on. The continuity of the Bible, 66 books written over uh, a 1,600-year period of time by 40 different altru- uh, authors, three continents, three languages all coming together together. Uh, in a way that that uh, absolutely shows that it had one author, and uh, it was a message that originated from outside of our time domain. I'm sounding like Chuck Missler now. Uh, I, I sat under his teaching a lot, so you might hear some Misslerisms slipping out. But one of the ways that we know God's, the Bible is God's word is through prophecy. And this is something God even said. I won't have you turn to it, but for Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 God said, I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future, and the idea is, and be right every single time. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. So God says, only I know the end from the beginning. Only I can tell you everything that's going to happen in the future and be right every time. Because as we know, God is not subject to time. God is outside of our time domain. Everything is happening to God in the eternal present tense. So it's not, you know, not like us. We look at, uh, at time as a, like a parade coming past us from ground level. God looks at that same parade like we would look at that parade from a helicopter looking down. You would see the, the, uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end all at once. God sees all of human uh, creation that way from Genesis all the way through the culmination of the eternal state in Revelation 22. He sees it all, right? And he can tell us. He said, look, in Deuteronomy 18, if somebody prophesies one thing in my name that doesn't come to pass, or a false prophet. And back then they were stoned. So we know that prophecy is one of the ways God authenticates his word and lets us know that it is, in fact, a supernatural book that God has definitely written. As soon as Jesus prophesied, though, that Judas would betray him in verse 18, he quickly adds verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes. In other words, I'm telling you this about Judas before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that what? I am. The he is in italics, right? Which means it's not there in the original. It was added by the translators for clarity. We, we touched on this uh, we studied John 8 24 before Abraham was not I am he but I am I am is the name of God I am is the name of God God told Moses go tell Pharaoh that I want him to let my people go but Lord I don't even know your name who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me you tell Pharaoh I am is sending you that is the name of God. So Jesus says one more time, I'm telling you something before it happens that you will know. I am God. I, if they didn't already believe that, and I'm sure they did by this point, but again, Jesus was stressing uh, the reality that he is God in human form, the great I am. But please understand something when it comes to Judas, because a lot of people have this wrong. They believe that Judas was the uh, a puppet, a robot, a fall guy, uh, that... God made him betray Christ, and it really wasn't fair to poor Judas that God made him betray Christ and then punished him for betraying Christ. Well, that would be unfair, wouldn't it? That's not what happened. Some people want to make man's, man's free will and God's sovereignty mutually exclusive. They can work together, and they do work together. I mean, do you realize how how infinite our God is we're approaching 8 billion people on planet earth 7.8 billion people live on planet earth and God has given every single one of them a free will God knows what every one of those people when put in certain situations how they will exercise their free will not forcing them to do anything just simply understanding because he's God he knows all things If I put this person in this situation, here's how they're going to respond. And if it fits into God's overall plan, he'll do that like he did with Judas. God God didn't make Judas do anything. Uh, God chose Judas to be one of Jesus' apostles, knowing that when put in that situation, Judas would eventually uh, act out of his own free will in betraying Christ, but that would overall fit into God's ultimate plan, and, and, and work towards the redemption of mankind. Um, don't turn to it, but Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16, talking about how Judas, you know, he, he was um, responsible for his actions. He acted according to his own free will. Matthew 26, 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time he, Judas, sought opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus. Um, you know that for centuries Christians have debated the reason for Jesus, excuse me, for Judas' betrayal of Jesus. I mean, think about this for just a second. What would cause one of Jesus' closest friends, a man whom he chose to be an apostle? someone who walked with Jesus for three and a half years uh, watching him minister to hurting people watching him heal the sick, work miracles and teach God's truth to the masses I mean what would cause a man like Judas to turn on Jesus like this and plot to betray him knowing the leaders of Israel wanted someone to betray Jesus to them so they could kill him I don't know I, I, I was not inside his head, I don't know I can give you a couple of the more common uh, explanations that people give. Uh, You can Google this, and and I had about four or five. I'll just give you the two most common ones. Number one, perhaps people say perhaps Judas was disillusioned with the type of Messiah Jesus revealed himself to be. Uh, In essence, wanting a more political, militant Messiah, right? From the time the Jews were just little kids, they were taught when Messiah comes, he's going to lead us in a revolt against whatever... Uh, Nation is suppressing us at that time. It would be Rome in the first century. And he is going to lead us in a battle against Rome, overthrow the Roman government, and establish a kingdom where we would be free people and Messiah would rule from Jerusalem over the whole world. The Jews would be his prime ministers. That's what they were taught. And that's why a lot of his disciples started following him. Remember now, at different points in his ministry, uh, many got fed up and followed him no more. Why? because he wasn't acting like a military messiah. He was teaching them to love their enemies, overlook faults that people do to you. That that was not the language of a guy that was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, right? So many became disillusioned and said, hey, this guy can't be. That's why they chose Barabbas, uh, the day of the crucifixion. Well, at least with Barabbas, we, we know what we got. He is a militant. He has led... Uh, some some uh, movements against the Roman government. Jesus, he's talking about loving our enemies. He can't be the Messiah. Maybe, maybe Barabbas is, and that's where they chose him. Or number two, some even suggest that Judas did not did this from a, a noble motive, that uh, he was impatient for Jesus to reveal himself as a powerful Messiah, and so he decided, I'm going to force the issue. Jesus, what is Jesus? what is Jesus doing He's dragging his feet let's get going with this kingdom okay uh, maybe I can jump start it if I betray him to the chief priests and leaders of Israel and they come to arrest him he won't tolerate that then he'll cause us tell us to rise up the time has come and we'll go to war against Rome well, that's not what happened but because Judas didn't understand Jesus it's Sad when somebody follows Jesus For that long a period of time, and still doesn't know. There's a lot of people who go to church every single week and they really don't understand Jesus. They really don't. They got him doing and being everything but what he is. He's an environmental Jesus. He's a banker, Jesus. Invest your money with him, he'll make you rich. He is a counselor, you know, Dr. Jesus. Uh, First century Dr. Phil, you know, just come to Jesus with all your problems and he'll take care of everything. They have no idea who Jesus is, or why he came, or what it means to follow him. Whatever the specific reason, the words of Judas stand. I don't know, I can't get into his head, I don't know why he betrayed the Lord. But for whatever reason, his words stand, and no doubt will haunt him for all eternity. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? how many people are basically making that deal with the world they believe in their heart that jesus is who he said he is but they'd rather receive things from the world they'd rather make a, a a pact with the devil basically what will you give me if i give up jesus and jesus said you know what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his own soul what is what is worth your soul what material thing on earth what house or car or pleasure is worth losing your eternal soul over now the fact that Judas was about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver well we know that that didn't catch the Lord by surprise because he prophesied five centuries earlier through the prophet Zechariah that this would in fact happen. In Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13, we read uh, this prophecy, if uh, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. We know that later Judas brought the money back and gave it to, or tried to give it to the Jewish leadership uh, by telling them, I can't can't keep this. I have betrayed innocent blood to which they basically responded, tough luck. Uh, That's your problem, okay? And so Judas threw the money down on the floor of the temple, went out and hanged himself. This caused the chief priests to say among themselves, what do we do now? We can't put the money back in the temple treasury. It's blood money. We use it to buy information from someone that led to the death of a person we didn't want alive anymore. So it's it's blood money. We can't keep it. And they talked for a little bit and decided, look, here's what we should do. We should take the money and buy a potter's field so we can bury the, dead, the poor there. All right, bury the poor there. And uh, a potter's field, of course, that was predicted by... Zachariah, of course, but a potter's field, if you can't already guess, is a, field, a piece of ground next to a potter's house, next to a potter's house, and it was out onto this field that a potter would toss all the pottery that didn't survive the uh, firing process. It cracked or got broken, so you know how it goes. You take it out. He takes it out of the kiln, and it's cracked or it's, it's broken, so he just throws the pots out into the field next to his house, and eventually the, that field became so loaded with little pieces of, of broken pottery, it was useless for farming. And they thought worse, worthless until somebody came up with the idea, well, let's buy these potter's fields and, and bury the poor because, you know, they have no family, they have no resources. Uh, this solves a good problem. We're utilizing worthless land to use as burial ground. That's why the term potter's field became another way of saying a graveyard. Because that's what they did. That's how they, uh, what they, they did with these potter's fields. Well, again, John 13, verse 18, uh, Jesus said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats, my, eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Guys, let me say again, Jesus wanted his disciples, all of us, really, to know that Judas' betrayal did not take him by surprise. In fact, Jesus tells us in the Gospels that he knew from the beginning that Judas wasn't a true disciple at all. He wasn't a true child of God. He was a deceiver. He was a child of the devil. Later on in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are trying to replace Judas, right? They're casting lots. Before they did that, they said, well, Judas has gone to his own place. In the Greek, that signifies, as Jesus called him, a son of perdition, a son of hell. Hell was his own place. In other words, heaven had never been a place for Judas. It wasn't that he was a disciple and saved at one point, but lost his salvation, as some Christians believe and teach. No, Judas was never a child of God. He was never saved, because I'm a firm believer. If you've really given your heart to Christ and you're really born of the Spirit, you are forever saved. You're forever saved. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was not a true disciple. Turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, and I want you to jump down to verse 63. Where Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Aren't you glad that God knows everything in advance. Aren't you glad that God never has a plan B that he has to hurry and put into practice because plan A failed, right? Aren't you glad that, you know, if, if God had Abraham, he didn't have a B-braham or a C-braham. <laughs> because when God has a plan for somebody's life, he knows what he's doing. and And he, and he knows exactly what we're going to do. And, 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 and how he can use us if our hearts are open to that, right? I'm so thankful that our God knows everything. Nothing takes him by surprise. He doesn't have to panic and say, oh, you know, Moses is dead. Oh, what am I going to do now? Quick, quick. It's like, you know, it doesn't work like that, right? So now in the upper room, now we're only a few hours from the cross, Jesus begins to hit this um, subject home again. Um, He declares to his disciples, he did earlier in the evening, that there is a betrayer among them. Now they're in the upper room. It's only the 12. He begins to touch on this again, that there is a betrayer among that. Verse 10, John 13. And here Jesus is talking to Peter. But he said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Now, really, as we study this, we know he's ultimately talking about being washed in salvation right where his blood would fully cleanse somebody and they would be saved that's that's the idea behind the foot washing he was doing right he was he was using it to teach a spiritual truth but jesus said he was bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you for he knew who would betray him therefore he said you are not all clean you're not all saved As the night progresses, Jesus proclaims this again, and it's breaking his heart. We'll see more about this next week. It's breaking his heart. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. He didn't want Judas to go to hell. We'll see this next time, all right? A message I'm calling Last Chance, and we'll see it next week, God willing. But when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As we have already said, Judas has got to be one of the most tragic, if not the most tragic figure in all of human history. Again, think about this man. Think of the privilege he enjoyed to be chosen by Jesus, handpicked. To be one of his closest friends, an apostle who got to walk with Jesus for three and a half years, soaking in his presence, his love, his wisdom, while watching him work one miracle after the other in healing the sick, casting out demons, even raising the dead. How could somebody so close to Jesus wind up going to hell? It boggles the mind. Author James Montgomery Boyce weighs in on this. He said, and I quote, How could Judas have missed learning what was truly valuable and giving up everything for it? I don't know. But I know that millions are doing just that today. Let me remind you that it is possible to be quite close to Jesus Christ to sit in a Christian church listening to good sermons, to hear good Bible teaching on radio or television, to have Christian parents or Christian friends who live consistent and effective Christian lives and bear strong testimonies to the gospel of God's grace and yet fail to love Christ and never reach the point of making him your own personal Savior, not making a commitment to him as one's Lord and Savior. You can be that close to Jesus Christ and yet be lost. It would be a tragedy for that to be true in your case, but it is not necessary, especially if you have understood who Jesus is and what he came to earth to do. Like Mary, Mary Magdalene, you need to look deeply into his eyes and learn to love him as the one who loves you and gave himself for your salvation, end quote. Now look, verse 20 is interesting to me. In that right after Jesus declares that one of his disciples was going to betray him, and again, at this time, nobody knew it was Judas. Only Judas knew it was Judas. Uh, but nobody knew, not the 11 in that room, not any of Jesus' disciples. And they wouldn't for a while, but it was getting close. Okay, um, But right after Jesus declares that one of his disciples in that room was going to betray him, he then says in verse 20, Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, when you read those words, they seem somewhat disconnected from the context, okay? They, they seem kind of out of place uh, from the context that Jesus has just gotten done telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And then he says, verse 20, and it, it doesn't seem to fit, okay? But that's why you got to look at the entire context carefully and, and, and then bring in other scriptures that shed light on what may be going on here, right? This makes perfect sense when you remember that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to evangelize the lost, and Judas went with them. Judas went with them. When it became clear, and apparently Judas did everything that the other 11 apostles did Jesus sent them out to cast out demons, preach the gospel, heal the sick, and apparently Judas did all of that. When it became clear that Judas was never a true disciple, when it became clear he was not saved, um, and he proved it by eventually betraying Christ. I, I can just imagine somebody saying who got saved under Judas' ministry, and I'm convinced people got saved under Judas' ministry. I can imagine, though, somebody after finding out Judas was a deceiver, a, a child of the devil, uh, you know, uh, and all, uh, but they got saved under his ministry, I, I can just hear them saying, you know, if, if Judas was a fake Christian. A phony disciple. What does that make me? I mean, what does that make me? Can I even be saved if a wicked deceiver like Judas preached the gospel to me? And really, think about that. You, you might be prone to think that too, right? I mean, Judas was a phony. He was not a true disciple. He proved that by betraying Christ. That guy witnessed to me. I got saved through his ministry. What does that make me? Where does that lead me? Am I even saved? Can I? Can a person get saved? when uh, somebody like a Judas preaches the gospel to him. Jesus anticipated that. And that's why I believe he included verse 20. He, he knew that there were going to be people that had gotten saved through Judas' ministry who would feel this way, so he quickly says in verse 20, Most assuredly I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Guys, remember, the power to bring forth new life, listen, resides in the word of God in the gospel and not in the one who shares it. Just like the power to bring forth a stalk of wheat resides in the seed and not in the sower. It's a very important point. God's word is living and powerful. It doesn't matter who handles it or shares it. It's the word that has the power, right? J. Vernon McGee said, if a Western Union boy brings you a telegram, he's dating himself, he's with the Lord actually, (laughs) Uh, but if a Western Union boy brings you a telegram, that a rich uncle died and has left you a fortune, the fact that the Western Union boy may be a thief doesn't invalidate the message of the telegram, does it? He said, I knew a preacher who had become an unbeliever. A man who drove me to the train said to me, Dr. McGee, I am puzzled. I was saved under the ministry of that man. I know I'm saved. I know I'm a child of God, but I'm puzzled. How can you explain it? McGee said, I showed this man this very text, John 13, verse 20. I showed him this very text and told him that even Judas had gone out preaching and had won converts, not because he was Judas but because he had given the message of God's word. God will bless his word. We are saved by the hearing of God's word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now that tells me Judas was just like the other disciples, okay? Because they had no idea who Jesus might be talking about when he said, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, if there was something different about Judas, we could understand it, right? I mean, if they all wore white robes and they wore, you know, like a black leather robe or something, you know, we would say, okay, maybe that's a little red flag or something, right? if the 11 went out Matthew 10 and they were preaching the gospel and healing the sick and casting out demons but Judas did none of that when Jesus said when are you going to betray me they might have looked at Judas and said I think it's him he's acting kind of funny okay uh no he was they were completely shocked um, when it, they learned it was Judas now I I have to leave it there okay um we'll pick it up next time god willing because there's just too much and i just really want to bring in the events of that night give you some of the cultural background if you're going to really understand what happened in the upper room that night okay but i just want to end by saying look please take to heart the lessons you have already learned today please take that to heart the lessons that we've already covered that we've learned in these verses please take those to heart and that, and they are these okay Just because you go to church, are involved in ministry, call Jesus Lord doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go to heaven someday. Judas is a prime example of that. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Judas is a prime example of that. One of the classic passages on this very topic is Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23 where Jesus said not everyone who says to me Lord Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness guys jesus christ is basically saying make sure you're not deceiving yourselves make sure you're really saved are you really born again are you really a member of god's kingdom make sure and i say that when i repeat i should say what jesus said because i know today the church is flooded with counterfeit christians what do i mean well these are people who have gone to church and may still go to church But at one point they went to church, maybe a Christian concert or a crusade, heard the gospel preached to them. When the altar call was given, they went forward to receive Jesus. And they prayed the prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior. The problem was, for many of these people, it's an emotional thing. I mean, they're there and... And they need something, their life is a mess, and they hear this message of how God loves them and Jesus wants to save them. And so the altar calls given, they go forward, they're crying. I need Jesus, I need something. I need I'll take Jesus, you know. And, and Jesus Himself said in the parable, of the sower. There are some who receive the word with great joy, but because there's no depth to their faith, it's not genuine, uh, it eventually withers and dies. Some people don't know what they're doing when they come forward to pray to receive jesus they have no idea i was telling first service some years ago Luis palau came out to the area and was going to do a series of crusades and we worked with him for a year before he came out to be trained and all and i was one of the counselors pastors were, were asked to be counselors so when the altar call was given and people started coming out of their seats down to the main floor of the stadium or wherever it was the counselors would come down right and, and i was teaching on these these very topics and so I was really in my mind. I just, I, I just felt the need to to just press a little bit. So this young woman comes up to me, and or I walk up to her. She's about 20, and I said to her, I said, "Why have you come down today? Uh, you know, wh- wh- why did you come down?" She said, well, "I, I want to receive Jesus as my savior." Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, uh, do you know what that means? Well, I think so. Um, you know, I mean, ha- have you really thought about? what it means to be a Christian. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, Well, let me share it with you. I said, look, I said, what you're doing is you're relinquishing control of your life. And I I had a woman take her whole family out of the church when I taught this last time. Okay? What you're doing is you're relinquishing control of your life to Jesus. He's going to become your master. You're going to become his servant. Um, he becomes your Lord. Everything he wants you to do, where he wants you to go, what he wants you to do in the way of ministry and living your life, has got to be done for him. I mean, he becomes everything, and you become a servant that lives to, uh, to obey him and to do all that he wants you to do. Are you, ready to res- are you ready for that? She looked at me for about 15, 20, 25 seconds, stared at me and said, no, I don't think I'm ready to do that. And I thanked her for her honesty, prayed with her, and off she went. When I shared that a few years ago, a woman in our church that had been here for like two or three years had wrote me back and said I was teaching salvation by works, and she took her whole family out of the church. I tried to explain to her I'm not teaching salvation by works. I'm teaching a salvation that works. Check out James. I'm not saying work saves you. I'm saying though that if uh, are you saying that just simply believing some facts about Jesus in your head that's all a person needs to be saved? The demons, James tells us, believes all the facts about Christ. There has to be a point where you it, it's more than facts, and it is. Saving faith is believing to the point of listen commitment, commitment. Uh, people have grown up in church. They've gone to Wana Sunday school their whole lives. They believe in Jesus. They believe who he is, what he did, and so on. The problem is they haven't taken it to the next step and have committed their life to Jesus like you would commit your life to somebody uh, you believe would make a fantastic spouse. And you agree that you're going to enter into this commitment with each other called marriage, and, and, and it takes your relationship to a whole new level, right? Same is true with Jesus a lot of people date jesus jesus doesn't want to be dated he wants to be loved embraced he wants you to make a commitment to him and that's where the bible calls our relationship with him a marriage he's the bridegroom we're the bride right in these verses guys and we're we're done but let me just end in these verses in matthew 7 21 to 23 listen jesus makes one of the most shocking sobering statements you're going to find anywhere in the bible in fact it's so shocking that if it hadn't come from the mouth of the lord jesus christ himself we would not even have believed it not even believed it in these verses jesus makes it very clear that it's not what we know about him again a lot of people have had knowledge not what we know about him or what we say about him but how we live for him that demonstrates whether or not we're truly born again i'm just repeating what Jesus is saying, and all the other apostles are saying, I'm not teaching salvation by works. I'm teaching a salvation that works. Jesus said, you'll know them by their what? Fruit. The fruit of a changed life is the only way we know something has happened in a person's heart. Paul said a young, told a young pastor named Titus, uh, many profess to know God, but by their lives, they deny him. There's no fruit, there's no change, and so on, Right? And remember here, guys, guys, here in Matthew 7, Jesus isn't talking about the irreligious or the quasi-religious. He's talking about the very religious. They called him Lord, Lord. That's emphatic. These were not wishy-washy people. They were committed. I know people that go to Mass every single day of their lives. I don't believe they're saved. I've talked to them. They're putting all their trust in these rituals and works. But they're committed. And they do believe the facts about Jesus. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 7 isn't talking about the atheists, agnostic, skeptics, sec, uh, uh, the uh, secularists. He's talking about those who are very religious. And yet he's telling us they're, they're also very lost. Very lost. They took the wrong road. Somewhere along the way, the devil tricked them into taking the broad way instead of the narrow way. Remember Matthew 7, 13 and 14? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. The broad way is a tolerant way. It's the way of you know acceptance, tolerance. Um, if you're very religious, it's the way of ceremonies and rituals, which are easy, okay? It's easy to come to church and offer God a ceremony or two, keep a feast day once in a while, than it is to live for Him with your whole heart all year long. But but how could this have happened to these folks? How could they have been such devoted churchgoers and yet still been lost? How does that happen to anybody? You know, many people have been been misled because of false prophets, you know, false teachers and pastors and evangelists and so on. There are many who go to hell, to hell because they sat under the teaching of false doctrine and have been deceived. That's true. But many others go to hell who sat under the teaching of the truth. It's a sobering thought. Many others go to hell who sat under the teaching of the truth yet have never made a real commitment to Jesus Christ. These have deceived themselves into thinking they're Christians. When Jesus taught us in Matthew, Matthew 7 about the dangers of false prophets, He went on to teach about the dangers of false professions. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. I'm convinced that the visible church, that would be churches, buildings all over our country, on street corners and so on, are this morning filled with people who are not saved and yet don't know it. Maybe some right here in our church who sit under the teaching of God's word from week to week. You believe what you hear. You you do. You absolutely believe what you hear. And you believe Jesus is Lord. You believe He's Savior. You believe He died on the cross for your sins, rose again the third day. But you're not saved. I, I don't know who you are. I hope nobody in this room. But there are many people who go to church who have the head knowledge but are not saved and if they don't repent and get right with god and accept christ into their hearts and truth they're going to have a horrible reality dawn on them one day they're going to stand before him and hear jesus say depart from me i never knew you you, you know I, I i saw a gallup poll some time ago that said 52 percent of americans believe listen they are born again christians 85 percent believe they're christians but born again implies a level of knowledge that goes beyond just the person being born in america i'm a christian why because i was born in america well that's okay no but all right when people start labeling themselves born again christians that tells me they know the gospel they know the gospel Yeah, something is very wrong because I don't believe, maybe you do, I don't believe 52% of my neighbors are born again Christians. I don't believe 52% of the people in my neighborhood are saved. We're done, guys. Listen to what Jesus is saying. We'll pick it up next week, God willing. There are many people in churches that think they're saved but are not. This is the ultimate deception, self-deception. And that's why the Bible admonishes us in numerous places, Examine yourselves to make sure you are really in the faith. If we examine ourselves, we won't have to stand before Jesus someday and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me into hell. Then it's too late to change, right? May God give us grace. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word shines a light in our hearts. Father, we're we're all prone to self-deception. We all think we're better than we really are. And many believe that they, because they come to church, have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, that they are now Christians, born-again Christians. But there's no fruit in their lives. Their lives are not changing at all. It's one thing to have struggles. We all have struggles. That's not, We're not saying a person's got to be perfect. But Lord, when a person comes to church, hears the gospel, hears your word taught, walks out those doors, and does absolutely nothing about it, Lord, give them the grace to understand they are playing games with you. And they will find out someday, if they don't repent now while there's still time, they're going to find out that they never knew you. Father, work in their hearts that they would not let it come to that point. And We just thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your word is truth. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.